Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Nosile Zuma, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa... The United States President-elect Joe Biden uses his first major speech since winning the election to urge Americans to wear masks to slow the spread of the coronavirus. South Africa's state arms manufacturer's former CFO tells the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that the company's money was used to bail out one of its suppliers. In economics news, Zambia's energy expert says the entrance of Greenco Power Services into the electricity off-taking market will ease the burden on Zesco Limited. And in sports news, Bafana Bafana coach makes forced changes to the national squad. But first up, the news with Nosile Zuma. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Health experts and politicians have welcomed the news that an experimental coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 infections. The experimental vaccine, which has been developed in the U.S. and Germany by Pfizer and BioNTech, has so far shown no serious safety concerns. But experts have warned that caution is still needed. The Palab Gosh has the story. The promising results don't mark the beginning of the end of the pandemic, but the start of a long and difficult journey to slowly get us back to a more normal life. The safety of the Pfizer vaccine still has to be demonstrated before it gets regulatory approval. Then there are the issues of who gets it and how best to use it. This will depend on some of the scientific questions that remain, whether the vaccine is able to stop transmission rather than just prevent disease how long immunity lasts and whether it works with older people. 1,247 new coronavirus cases have been detected in South Africa in the latest 24-hour cycle, putting the cumulative number at 738,525. The health department says that six COVID-19-related deaths have been reported, bringing the national death toll to 19,845. The number of recoveries now stands at 680,726. Meanwhile, new research suggests that people who have survived COVID-19 are at greater risk of psychiatric disorders than people who had had other illnesses. The BBC's Philippa Hoxby has more. Compared with people who've had other illnesses, the Oxford research team found that patients recovering from COVID-19 were roughly twice as likely to develop a psychiatric disorder. Even those who were not ill enough to be admitted to hospital still had a higher risk. The researchers suggest COVID survivors may be consumed with worry about their future health, or it's possible the virus could have a direct effect on the brain. Harder to explain was a finding that patients with a psychiatric disorder were 65% more likely to develop COVID-19. 
President Alejandro Diamata says Guatemala will request temporary humanitarian protection for its citizens in the United States following the devastation caused by Storm Eta. A deluge linked to Storm Eta killed an estimated 150 people in Guatemala last week and caused devastation from Panama to Mexico. The UN's refugee agency says 3,600 people have fled into Liberia from Ivory Coast fearing post-election violence. The UNHCR says numbers have surged following the 31st October presidential election. Uh, Final results issued on Monday gave the incumbent Alassane Outara, who ran for a controversial third term, more than 94% of the vote. It has been confirmed by the Constitutional Court. The UN says Liberia, which is still recovering from a series of civil wars, is not economically capable of hosting the refugees. And U.S. President Donald Trump has dismissed his defense secretary, Mark Esper. Mark Esper. Trump made the announcement on Twitter earlier this year. The two clashed over the president's suggestion that the military could be used to end the protest against racial discrimination and injustice. The BBC's Anthony Zecha reports. It's not surprising to see senior administration uh, officials start to head for the exits towards the end of a presidential term. But to have one pushed out the door is very unusual. This could be Donald Trump settling scores. This could be Trump trying to maintain the, uh, the perception that there could still be a second Trump term since he's challenging the election and he's making personnel changes in order to prepare for that. Whatever the reason, it is highly unusual. And I think uh, despite the fact that Esper had fallen out, it came as a, a shock for it actually to happen, although not as a shock for it to happen by tweet. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosiche Zuma. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Nasita. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. United States President-elect Joe Biden has used his first major speech since winning the election to urge Americans to wear masks to slow the spread of the coronavirus that has exceeded 100,000 daily new infections in the country over the last three days. He spoke on a day that pharmaceutical company Pfizer announced that its COVID-19 vaccine was 90% effective based on initial trial results, news that was welcomed by the markets. Biden also named and met with newly formed COVID-19 advisory board as a pandemic, along with the economy, remains atop of his agenda as he formally gets his transition to the White House underway. Show and Bryce Pete's reports. The Pfizer news was broadly welcomed after the pharmaceutical company and its German partner BioNTech revealed they'd found no serious safety concerns and expected to seek U.S. authorization later this month for emergency use of the vaccine, an approval that only the Food and Drug Administration can give. Pfizer's CEO and chairman Albert Borla lauded the vaccine's progress. It was exactly what you can imagine uh, it is uh, a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity. When you realize that uh, your vaccine has a 90% effectiveness, that's overwhelming. Uh, you understand that uh, the hopes of billions of people and millions and uh, businesses and hundreds of governments that were felt on our shoulders uh, 
now we can uh, credibly tell them, I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel. He indicated that as they seek approval for the vaccine, that they could have up to 50 million doses available before the end of the year and about 1.3 billion doses for 2021. I truly believe that uh, it's not for Pfizer to decide who will get the vaccine. I think it is for the health authorities of every country and in many cases within the same country of every region or of every state in the US, for example, because the... The situation differs from uh, state to state or from country to country, and you need to tailor it to the needs of the specific uh, geographical uh, region. Uh, we will, of course, work with all these health authorities to provide them the insight that they need to understand how our product works in groups of older people, in groups of younger people. This, as the US President-elect Joe Biden displayed some of the urgency with which his team will address the pandemic, appointing a 13-person COVID advisory board as the country surpassed 10 million cases since the virus first appeared in January. This group will advise on detailed plans built on a bedrock of science and to keep compassion, empathy and care for every American at its core, making rapid testing widely available more widely available, much more widely available. I'm building a core of contact tracers who will track and curb this disease while we prioritize getting vaccines first to the most at-risk population. Biden said he'd spare no effort to turn the pandemic around once sworn into office next year. I implore you, wear a mask. Do it for yourself. Do it for your neighbor. A mask is not a political statement but it is a good way to start pulling the country together. I want to be very clear. The goal of mask wearing is not to make your life less comfortable. It's to take something or take something away from you. It's to give something back to all of us, a normal life. The goal is to get back to normal as fast as possible. And masks are critical in doing that. It won't be forever. But that's how we'll get our nation back, back up to speed economically, so we can go back to celebrating birthdays and holidays together. The U.S. has recorded over 237,000 deaths from COVID-19 since January. While the Pfizer vaccine and others show great promise, it's never been viewed as a silver bullet. And in the absence of FDA and other administrative approvals and the necessary scientific peer reviews that must still analyze the data, wearing masks, washing hands, and social distancing remain protocols that cannot as yet be discarded. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Meanwhile, a Joe Biden presidency will treat Africa with respect and seek to negotiate rather than dictate terms of engagement, says Kenyan international relations expert Professor Macharia Munene, who argues it will be a total shift from President Donald Trump, who did not pay much attention to the continent. He says a more engaged U.S. will mean a tough time for tyrants and dictators. Sarah Kimani engaged him on what Biden is likely to offer the continent of a billion people. After a weekend of celebrations in the U.S. and a collective sigh of relief in other parts of the world following Joe Biden's electoral victory, Africa is looking back at Donald Trump's presidency and his relationship with the continent. Uh, the image he has portrayed is a negative one. 
Uh, he went around insulting Africans. International relations expert Professor Masharia Munene says as president, Joe Biden will have to take Africa more seriously and unlike his predecessor, engage the continent as one and not as individual countries in the spirit of African Union's push for deeper integration. The continent's leadership he wants must be ready to negotiate for reciprocal agreements. Uh, Biden portrays himself as a man of reason. So instead of dictating the way Trump has a habit, he will reason. And uh, if he tries to reason, then you also have to be ready to reason with him. And in international dealings, it is the ability of any power or any country to out-reason the other one in its own interest that counts. So the message to African countries is not to assume that things will be good because Biden is a nice man. While the Trump administration has been slow to interfere with internal governance issues in Africa, there is a feeling that a Joe Biden presidency will push for political accountability. So he may not be tolerant uh, to tyrants or dictators or people in Africa who want to violate institutional uh, structures. That would be a message to leaders and would-be leaders. Don't ignore institutions or violate them. Biden's vow to return the U.S. to the Paris Climate Agreement, as well as the resumption of funding to the World Health Organization, will likely offer immediate benefits to Africa, as the continent angles itself to reap from his presidency. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitonjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, for Channel Africa in Kinshasa in the DRC, I'm Jean-Noël Bamweze. Stay informed on the latest developments about COVID-19. Visit the World Health Organization's website to get more information.
It's 7.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa State Arms Manufacturer Danel's former Chief Financial Officer Peter Notze has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg that the company's money was used to bail out one of its suppliers, LMT Holdings. He says this was despite warnings from auditors. According to evidence before the Commission, LMT Holdings was paid before it delivered on its contract to Denel. Tsepamungai reports. Knotze says the decision was taken to assist LMT Holdings to deliver on its orders as it was facing financial difficulties. He was grilled about his role in Danel's acquisition of a majority stake in LMT back in 2010. A report by KPMG had warned against the decision to acquire the stake. Evidence leader is Paul Kennedy. So Mr Knotze, these concerns that you that you acknowledge were put in the due diligence report by KPMG. Surely they raised some alarm bells on your part as Chief Financial Officer at that time of DLS. And nonetheless, you approved and motivated, sorry, you recommended rather for approval, the purchase by Danel of a majority shareholding in LMT. Uh, But specifically on the... 51% 51% option shareholding or was part of only one person as part of a much bigger team that actually uh, made the decision. Then former AMSCO CEO Sipom Kwanazi took to the stand. AMSCO is responsible for procuring all of the South African National Defense Force military equipment. Mkwanazi was grilled about a tender awarded to Denel to supply armored vehicles called turrets. The commission heard about how Denel's eliminated competition to secure its position as the main supplier of weapons to the state. Mkwanazi told the commission that Denel would withdraw certain technical information to other bidders. But despite enjoying a near monopoly, Denel has failed to deliver until now. It's very difficult to say that one has got uh, uh, yeah, a good level of confidence in view of the fact that uh, when they submit such a uh, revised uh, completion date, it's all subject to Danel getting a bailout. So if they don't get a bailout, they are not in a position to, to buy critical parts, they are not in a position to pay suppliers. So literally there's minimal that is taking place in Danel. The Commission will continue to hear Danel-related testimony with former Denel Group Chief Financial Officer Fiki Lemklontlo scheduled to conclude his evidence this morning. The Commission will also hear evidence from former Denel Group Chief Executive Officer Zuela Kentepe. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. 
Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. As the world celebrates the announcement by global pharmaceutical company Pfizer that its COVID-19 vaccine trials have shown a 90% success, Johnson & Johnson is also busy with its own trials. It has commenced with the pivotal Phase 3 ensemble trial of its investigational Janssen COVID-19 vaccine in South Africa. The first South African ensemble Participants were dosed last week Friday, with the study also ongoing in the U.S., Brazil, Chile, Colombia and Argentina. Ludovic de Biocordri, Medical Affairs Director for Janssen South Africa, joins us on the line. Ludovic, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Now, Ludovic, please tell us more about the commencement of the pivotal Phase 3 ensemble trial of its investigational Janssen COVID-19 vaccine in South Africa and what this means. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, you're right. The first South African ensemble participants were those last, last week Friday uh, in South Africa in, in, in Western Cape. And this study is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials, which is designed to evaluate the safety and efficacy of a single, single dose of vaccine versus placebo uh, in, in around uh, 10,000 10, patients in South Africa. And the study will take place across approximately 31 trial sites in location with a high incidence of COVID-19. So it will include a site in Rotang, North, Northwest, Eastern Cape, Western Cape, Limpopo, Mompalonga, and three states. Now, the first South African ensemble participants, as you mentioned already and we've mentioned in the intro, were those last week Friday, with the study also ongoing in the United States, in Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Argentina. Please take us through the process of getting to this point of the phase. Yeah, it, it, it has a, a process which started uh, early in, in January, in fact. And what we, have, what we have done is that we have first identified a candidate and we have tested our candidate on different animals models. With these results, we initiated the first in human clinical trial for COVID-19 vaccine candidate on July 22 this year. And this was an important milestone in our progress toward providing a safe and effective vaccine to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Then the initiation of this phase three ensemble trials follows positive interim results from the company phase 1-2A clinical study, which was the first in humans, which demonstrated that the safety profile and the immunogenicity after a single vaccination were supportive for uh, our further development. And we published this result on internet on uh, end of September. What was the selection criteria for the participants in the study? So, all over the world, we are going to test uh, around 60,000 uh, adults of uh, 18 years old and older. 
uh, including significant representation from those that who are over the age of 60, uh, because as you know, COVID touched uh, especially these populations. The trial will also include those with and without comorbidities associated, associated with an increased risk for progression to severe uh, disease. But built on, on a legacy of uh, purpose-driven actions and a commitment to diversity and inclusion, we aim to achieve broad representation of participants, including older, I, I already say that, but also ethnic, ethnically diverse populations is very important for us. The location of sites were determined in close collaboration with local health authorities, taking into account current disease prevalence, population demographics, and regulatory authorities' requirements. And if it is a success, what will be the next step? So at Johnson & Johnson, we are committing to bring an affordable vaccine to the public on a non-for-profit basis for emergency pandemic use, provided evidently that the vaccine is demonstrated to be safe and effective and following regulatory approvals. So we are now expanding our global manufacturing capacity, including establishing new vaccine manufacturing capabilities scaling up capacities in other countries to provide global access to the Johnson, Johnson COVID-19 vaccine candidate. And we recently signed the communique on expanded global access, and we plan to allocate up to 500 million vaccine doses to lower-income countries, with delivery, delivery beginning mid-next year. Now, in terms of timeframes, you know, there has been um, a sort of a, a rush uh, looking at uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, um, the fact that there has been uh, speculation or um, experts are speaking of the timeframes when it comes to a vaccine manufacturing or finding a vaccine for such a pandemic. Timeframe wise, when do you expect to be fully ready to, to, you know, uh, once the trials have uh, been tested and everything and gone through the process, the final result where we will uh, get to hear from Johnson & Johnson that we have the vaccine? Mm. So the, the final, it, it's, a very, it's a very good question. The final result will be, in, a, in fact, in, in some years, huh, because what we, are, what we have uh, planned is to study the population, vaccinate the first population right now, it's what we are doing in our phase three, and to follow for a long time these patients. Okay, so the final result will be probably in, in some years. Uh, you know that usually to develop a vaccine, it takes to uh, eight to 12 years. Um, but for an emergency use, what we are do going to do is that we are going to use what we call interim analysis, as uh, some of our companies have already presented. And we are going to work um, with the regulatory authorities uh, to, to ensure that we could have a, an early access with this interim uh, analysis. And we plan to have this, this data uh, end of this year, beginning of next year, uh, for, for, for usage uh, uh, in 2021. Now, uh, looking at uh, Pfizer having made their announcement uh, that uh, they are also busy with trials and tests and the vaccine is, uh, you know, 90% uh, effective based. What does it do to you as a company, as an entity with regards to looking at Pfizer as your competitor? <laughs> I had to ask that because now yeah, everyone know, is talking about timeframes and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a rush to the finish line, basically. Exactly, but as a patient, as a scientist, it, I thought it's a very good news to demonstrate first 
that vaccine could be efficacious and, and, and that we have some, some vaccine program that works. You know that we, we, we don't need only one program. So we don't need only the Johnson & Johnson program. We are very proud that our program is working well right now. Uh, we, we, we are confident for, for the future, but we need more than one success to fight this pandemic, especially if we want to protect all the population all over the world. Now, Ludovic, uh, something else that is very key is the pricing um, of of uh, such a vaccine. What sort of pricing are we going to be looking at? Because um, you, if you look at uh, you know a country, a, a, a continents like Africa, for instance, and uh, um, the financial issues, or even globally, um, the financial in- issues that uh, all countries are experiencing. Uh, after the pandemic, um, you know, it, it, it is quite a dire situation with economies uh, still looking at recovery plans and so forth. What kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, economically, will it be uh, priced in such a way that every country has access to um, this uh, vaccine? Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an important question, the access and what we really want and what we are committed is to bring an affordable vaccine. And what we are going to do is to, to make it at a non-for-profit basis. We have announced that many months ago. And, and, and it's exactly what, what we are going to do for, for emergency pandemic use. It will be at a non-for-profit basis. And we are working right now with a lot of different partners all, all over the world and a lot of different institutions and a lot of different governments uh, to make that happen. Well, Ludovic, uh, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, uh, we obviously the whole world is watching very closely as uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is is uh, um, quite, uh, you know, prevalent and uh, a lot of people are losing their lives. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Lou. Uh, that's uh, Ludovic de Bjorkudre, Medical Affairs Director for Janssen South Africa. And he was joining us on the line. It is exactly 7.30 Central Africa. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Nosite Zuma. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa's Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, the Hawks National Head, Lieutenant General Godfrey Libya, has accepted the resignation of the spokesperson of the police's serious crime-fighting entity. Ethiopia's Prime Minister is not rebuffing international calls for calm amid an escalating conflict in the country that many fear is sliding towards civil war. And Peru's president has accepted Congress's decision to remove him from office. I'll be back with your full bulletin at 8. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. It's 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A recent spill of... uh 
plastic noodles, a catastrophic source of harmful microplastic pollution, took place recently off the coast of Plettenberg Bay in South Africa. With recent reports indicating that there will be more waste plastic than fish in the ocean by the year 2050, ocean cleanup activists litter for tokens are calling for everyone to get involved to change the trajectory of this devastating path. Eteguini co-founder and director of Waste Action Tribe, Lindsay Hopkins, spoke to Samora Mangis. Um, Nerdles are tiny little plastic pellets that much look like a shell. So that's possibly why people haven't noticed them in the past, because they're not looking after them. We on the ground like to call them mermaid tears. Um, and it's just a fun way that when we are dealing with children... And um, we just say that these shouldn't be washing up on our um, beaches. What a little, what a noodle is, is it's a tiny little plastic pellet. So before plastic is made into molds, um, it comes in these forms of these little pellets. So they, when you when you've got like a plastic mold that needs to be filled, these pellets fill up the spaces before it melts and creates a hard like plastic shell or mold. Um, so these pl- plastic pellets are in all of our the big factories that produce them. And unfortunately, they are then packed into one-ton bags and they are driven all the way throughout South Africa into other and other places where these noodles have been possibly um, bought by a company who owns molds who wants to make a plastic item. So while we're seeing them washing up on the beaches, unfortunately, they are driving on our roads on the back of huge big trucks every single day in big one-ton bags with a slight split or tear and they're just spearing everywhere. So tell us, how dangerous are they for oceanic life? Well, unfortunately, um, they're not all just white and light, but they do have a nice sheen on them. So fish do mistake them for um, particles of food. When they float on the surface on the water, much like any other small microplastics, and bearing in mind noodles aren't always white, they're blue, they're purple, they're pink, and even bird, fish and bird life are mistaking it for food. We've got footage of adult birds feeding baby birds these little pellets. And the problem is what actually happens is that fish and wildlife, the, the marine life, and, and also your strunk lurkers, your little birds on the, on the, on the um, sand and your crabs, think that this is food. They've swallowed it, they feel heavy, and they actually ultimately starve themselves to death. So when we've cut open and experimented on on on, full, on birds, sometimes they've got the equivalent of 12 pizzas of plastic in their stomach. So an adult carrying around 12 pizzas is just it's shocking because they keep eating and eating and eating and then they die. But you open their stomachs and they've got bottle lids, they've got everything. So those little noodles are so easy to swallow. I mean, the problem with fish, fish is unfortunately whether it's shrimps eating these noodles um, and then fish eat the shrimp and then we're eating fish. So we do definitely have fish that we've cut open that is meant for human consumption, and they are full of noodles. Um, and it's not just the lining of the stomach that these noodles are getting in. Uh, it's the stomach that these noodles are getting into. If you open turtles, they're in the in, in soft organs in their bodies. So it's not just a problem that, like, well, don't worry, I'm not going to eat the stomach of a fish. It, it is getting further into the system. And what has been done so far to deal with this problem, and is this enough? There are cleanups going on. There definitely are cleanups. They're with big corporate companies, which is costing a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And it is a shame because there are possibly cheaper, better grassroots uh, organizations and communities that we could call on um, where we could possibly be um, asking people to come out for cleanups 
and, and helping collect these noodles and perhaps paying people smaller, smaller amounts of money and, and sending it further, getting out awareness and education. Um, but you do have big corporate companies that are cleaning up sections of beaches. But um, yes, we, they, they could be more because unfortunately at the end of the day, industries that are making all the plastic do need to be held more accountable for getting this plastic back from the environment so that we can clean up and recycle. Um, and that means we need some extended producer responsibility taxes or levies. And then that comes to grassroots programs where we can we are men, we physically going out onto the into the ground onto the, onto the ground and we're cleaning up the plastic. So unfortunately I think far more responsibility needs to be on these on industries. We need to be putting more and more pressure on them to come forward. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 7.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The workplace environment has seen much uh, disruption this year. Many companies are relooking their structures to ensure continuity while enabling remote working for the most part. Work, workplace security has and continues to be one of the most important segments of the workplace environment and not enough is being said about what this should look like in a work-from-home or hybrid environment. This is according to Duran Vieira, Chief Executive Officer at a security solutions company in South Africa, Amico, who spoke to Samora Mangesi. Previously, you know, you would be, the homeowner would be responsible for your own security when you were working at a premises that was not on your premises. Um, now that we've got all these work from home facilities taking place, many organizations are, are asking uh, employees to stay at home. You you as a company owner now are taking a degree of responsibility for that person's safety. And, and we, needed, we need to be aware as business owners to realize that not every person lives in the best area, not every person you know, lives in the states or, or security villages. And so taking cognizance of that and the fact that you know, people now are going to be at the premises when possible violations take place. Um, so the, the world of security needs to change and organizations need to start, to start realizing that. And what security risks can be expected with working from home? So the difference between, you know, the previous security risks when we were at the office and the security risks that you get now, um, is basically the difference between burglary and robbery. So, you know, if you're at work and your wife's at work and all your dependents are at work or at school and no one's at home and someone breaks into your house, that's burglary. 
and that's basically a crime of property and possessions. Um, the problem now is with a large percentage of people working from home, that turns into robbery. So if someone gains access to your premises and you are there, the likelihood of you know some sort of physical violence taking place, you know, is much higher. And so now it becomes a crime of actual human rights and a crime against the person itself. So, you know, it, it changes quite a bit. And security needs to take cognizance of that because, you know, what historically what we see is alarm systems going into homes uh, that pick up, you know, movement within, a, within an area. But if you are at home, that doesn't ha- help you much because the alarm system can't be armed. So we're going to start seeing things like panic systems, you know, panic buttons. You know, you're working from home and you see an offense take place. You see someone jump over your wall, you press a panic button. And it's going to have to alert people with very quick response because, obviously, you are, prim- you are on the premises. So I think uh, panic systems are going to become the, uh, the face of the security sector, especially for the work-for-home uh, uh, people. And, and these panic systems must alert neighbors and community protection forums. All right. And what factors should determine workplace security in today's environment? So there's, there's a number of things that you need to take cognizance of. So, you know, the basics are you must make sure as a business owner or as a business that the premises, the staff and the equipment is safe during working hours. The next phase would be the premises and the equipment is secure during after hours, you know, outside working hours. And then it goes a little further and says, you know, staff and clients as well as assets are safe during working hours or during during any responsibility for the organization. So let me give you some sort of examples there. It actually starts becoming the responsibility of an organization to make sure, for instance, external salespeople are safe while they're in vehicles and traveling to go see clients. Um, also, you know, when they are in the premises of clients, it actually becomes the responsibility of the of the employer that his staff or her staff are safe when they're seeing clients. So you know, the, the face of, of business and security is changing. I think business owners and, secu- and, and uh, companies need to take cognizance of a much bigger part of security and uh, realize that they are actually responsible largely to a degree of traveling staff. All right. And uh, what role does the business play in ensuring that their staff and hardware is managed? Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that are taking place. So I think technology is really the biggest enabler of this sort of security. You know, remote oversight is, is very, very key to this. So organizations are starting to offer a app functionality for, for working staff. You know, if they if they see an offense or if they're involved in an offense, they can press a panic button that talks back to the to the office and to a response system. Uh, I've seen there's lots of, of hacking apps that allow for you to press panic on your cell phone to, and it sends your location to a number of security companies in the area. And that is also has been quite wildly, uh, widely uh, deployed. And then also things like you know remote oversight. So if if you're working from home um, and you do press your panic button, that it alerts your neighbourhood watch, as I mentioned before, but also alerts you know the the company that you work for. Hey, uh, possibly in a in a in a panic situation, uh, please take cognizance of this and possibly send some security or response uh, company to come and check if I'm okay. So I think the way security is going to change, especially in South Africa, because you know we've got quite niche problems here. Um, organizations are going to start taking more responsibility for the security of their staff, whether their staff is working within premises of the organization, whether the staff is working from home, or whether the staff is on the road. 
That was uh, Jaran Vieira, Chief Executive Officer at Security Solutions Company in South Africa, Amico, speaking to Samora Mangesi. 7.43 Central African Time and Across our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuk. Good morning. For Channel Africa, I'm Tabisolo Hoku. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa's economic advisor Trudy Makaya says discussions on energy security, structural reforms for economic recovery, mining and support for small businesses will take centre stage at next week's investment conference. Government has confirmed that the third South African investment conference will be held in Santin, north of Johannesburg from the 17th to the 18th of this month. Ramaphosa initiated the conference in 2018 in an effort to mobilize investment to reignite economic growth in the country. Makaya says the conference attendance is expected to be 90% lower due to the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. There will also be a panel on land reform and unlocking agricultural value chains. Uh, we've seen some steps in the land reform uh, process, you know, different elements of it in terms of releasing land, in terms of the sector itself, thinking about a, a potential development agency that's run uh, by the sector. So there are various partnerships and opportunities um, that are unlocked in that value chain. There'll be a panel on small business growth opportunities, particularly looking uh, as to how small businesses have fed under COVID. Trade union Bemau says it hopes that there will be further engagements with the South African Broadcasting Corporation on its restructuring plans. It was reacting to the public broadcaster's statement that it was considering different alternatives to minimize the impact of its planned retrenchments on employees. The SABC had given stakeholders until last Friday to make submissions on its restructuring plans. Last week, Bemau temporarily suspended its urgent application to the Labour Court over the plans that it will affect around 600 permanent staff and over 1,000 freelancers. Bemau President Hannes Dubuisson. We do not know what the SABC's further plans are. There is an expectation from our side that we will meet with the SABC, that we will continue the consultation process as an undertaking was made last week, which resulted in our urgent application being removed of the um, urgent court role. We hope that the SABC will uh, stick to that undertaking that has been made by them via their lawyers. Should they not do so, we will be back in court soon. South African clothing chain Trueworth says a difficult business climate that has unsettled the economy may continue troubling the markets in 2021, driven by slip in demand and a blazing liquidity crisis. These drawbacks have pushed Trueworths into a slowdown during the year ended 31st of July with inflation adjusted revenues sliding to 165.3 million US dollars from 177.8 million. Post tax profits slowed. To 9.3 million US dollars in 2020 from 23.4 million, respectively. Defying tax credits earned during the period. 
Zambia's energy expert, Johnston Chikwanda, says the entrance of green co-power services into the electricity off-taking market will ease the burden on Zesco Limited, which has been on the only off-taker of power from independent power producers. Last week, Africa Green Co. Group, with its Lusaka-based operating company Green Co. Power Services, announced an investment of 1.5 million U.S. dollars by Denmark's investment fund for developing countries and private infrastructure development groups in Africa to support renewable energy. Chikwanda says that the development will signify a shift from a single-buyer model to a multi-buyer model. Namibian airline FlyWest Air will start flights from Eris Airport in the capital, Ventuk, to Volvis Bay on the 20th November. This is to revive Namibia's local tourism industry. The privately owned Namibian airline has also maintained a high dispatch reliability, carrying more than 3,000 passengers in and outside of Namibia, despite COVID-19-related challenges and restrictions. The U.S. dollar is trading at 381.55 Nigerian Nara, 11.5 Botswana Pula, 107.94 Kenyan Shilling and 2061 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One U.S. dollar there costs 5 rule 35, Russia 76 rubles 69, India 73 rupees 83 and China a dollar is changing hands at 61.61 and in South Africa it will cost you 15 rand 45. The US dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. A look at commodities markets now. Gold is trading at $1,880 and platinum at $870 per ounce, while Brent crude oil is at $41.93 a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. It's 7.50 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, it's football news. Bafana Bafana head coach Mulifinzeki says, despite the challenges faced by the team, he's still optimistic about the great performance as they are set to face Sao Tome and Principe in the 2022 AFCON qualifiers. Both teams are set to play two matches in South Africa, uh, in South Africa here on Friday and on Monday, respectively. Bafana, who are positioned 14th on the Confederations of African Football Rankings, have been forced to make changes after six players were dropped out of the team due to injuries. Others were forced to isolate after they reportedly tested positive for COVID-19. Nzeki explains. It is difficult, but uh, uh, what else can you do? You have to come up with uh, a number of uh, mechanisms in addressing and coming up with a tactical plan that will definitely uh, make you win uh, these games. So as a technical team, we have done our plan, we have done our preparation. We are going to execute our plan and training and then expect uh, the players to respond accordingly and help them on Friday. 
Bafana Bafana captain Tulani Shachwaye says it's important to win the upcoming Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Sao Tome and Principe. The skipper says they have disappointed themselves and the nation in their previous friendlies against Zambia and Namibia respectively. Shachwaye says they have to start winning their games. It's important to get the six points because there's Ghana also coming and now that we're going to place our Tome um, board legs um, in our country it has to be advantageous to us and make sure that we get those six points and because um, it's, it's our country. The semi-final lineup at the 2020 Kosafa Women's Championship has become clear providing two massive matches up as the competition reaches the business end. After the final round of pool matches were played on Monday, defending champions South Africa will clash with powerful Malawi in the second semi-final on Thursday. While before that, Botswana will take on Zambia, who qualified for the last 14 as the best-placed runner-up. South Africa defeated Comoros 7-0 to secure the semi-final spot on Monday at Wolfson Stadium in the country's Eastern Cape province. Coach Desiree Ellis says they will have to be at the top of their game against the Malawians. Um. This time now we are going into some finals. That means we are going back to our drawing board, looking at um, Look, uh, we will go back and we'll analyze um, Malawi. Um, and then we'll, we'll have to come up with a plan, obviously, and then uh, and then execute the plan. It's going to be a tough match. Um, they've really played well so far, and we have to be on top of our game. Malawi defeated Zambia 1-0 in their last match of Group B on Monday. Malawi coach McNelbert Kazua is looking ahead to the semi-final. Um, this time now we are going into semi-finals. That means we are going back to our drawing board, looking at what uh, we have done today uh, to uh, manage beating uh, the Zambians. But still we need to uh, train for the remaining games. We have hope that we can go far, um, considering the fact that uh, uh, the players adhere to what, uh, what we, we, we tell them, what we um, train them on the pitch. Um, we train them um, physically, um, tactically, um, uh, psychologically, as well as mentally. So they are adhering to that. That's why they are responding very well. Finally, golf news. There will be seven South Africans in the field for the delayed 2020 Masters to be played at Augusta National later this week. A tournament which will take place from the 12th to the 15th of November was originally scheduled for its usual April slot, but the coronavirus pandemic put pay to those plans. South Africa has a rich history at the Masters since the first tournament was played back in 1934. Gary Player, South Africa's greatest ever sportsman, donned the famed green jacket on no fewer than three occasions. 1961, 1974, and 1978. That's a spot news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka, na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.
For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Indlovu by DJ Zintle featuring Loiso. Goodbye and keep safe.